Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. $25 an hour, the new wage in California by the year 2026. Meanwhile, Waffle House workers in the South fighting for better wages. And today on the show, the latest from the Ohio Federation of Teachers and the Farm Labor Organizing Committee. Welcome to the Tuesday, October 17th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms, including... Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. Melissa Cropper is going to be our first guest on the show today. Longtime supporter and sponsor of America's Workforce. Melissa serves as president of the Ohio Federation of Teachers, also secretary-treasurer of the Ohio AFL-CIO. Three things she's going to delve into today. Number one, lots of confusion about this new office. It's an executive office called the Department of Education and Workforce, and this was part of a budget bill passed last spring by the General Assembly. This uh, office would essentially take control of most of the responsibilities of the current State Board of Education and the Ohio Department of Education. Now, on the State Board, you have elected and appointed leaders on that State Board. OFT said, well, you know what? It's not a good idea that this is taken over because it limits the ability for educators, for parents and students to have any input on policy and to have elected board members who represent them. I mean, we we call this democracy, don't we? Well, last month, a number of board members decided to file a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the creation of the Department of Education and Workforce. And right now, everything is kind of up in the air. We'll see what happens. Melissa will will add more to this. First week of October was Banned Books Week. The OFT was very engaged in that. We're seeing uh, books being banned all around America, especially in the South. And also organizing. This is one of Melissa's favorite topics. An overwhelming majority of faculty members. This is at the Columbus College of Art and Design, CCAD, joined together to form their union with the Ohio Federation of Teachers. The Faculty Alliance filed for an election last month and are scheduled to vote starting next week. Ballots to be mailed on Thursday, and the vote period runs through November 17th. Good news there oh.aft.org. Today is National Farmers Day. So we figured the perfect person to bring to the show is Baldemar Velasquez, who is president of the Farm Labor Organizing Committee. Baldemar has been on the show several times in the past, and this was a perfect opportunity to talk about what's going in farming and the organizing that's going on. And this guy's a fighter. He was born in 1947, grew up in a migrant farm worker family based in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. Every year, every year, his family would migrate to the Midwest and other regions to work in the fields, planting, weeding, harvesting crops like pickles, tomatoes, sugar beets, berries. 
They traveled in trucks and old cars, often lived in barns, and converted chicken coops. They lived in chicken coops. Family eventually settled in Ohio. Baltimore worked in the field seasonally through his high school years to help support his family. In 1969, he became the first member of his family to graduate from college. He graduated from Bluffton College with a bachelor's in sociology. Incensed by the injustices suffered by his family and other farm workers, Baltimore founded the Farm Labor Organizing Committee, better known as FLOC. That was in 1967. Under his leadership, Flock has set international precedents in labor history, including being the first union to negotiate multi-party collective bargaining agreements and the first, the first to represent H-2A international guest workers under a labor agreement. This guy's a fighter and bright, too. He's internationally recognized in the farm worker and immigrants' rights movements. Commitment to justice and human dignity have led Baltimore to recognition by many labor, government, academic, and progressive organizations. And in 2009, he was elected to the AFL-CIO Executive Council. So Farmer's Day, actually there's two Farmer's Days. It's celebrated every year on October 12th. Okay, that's Farmer's Day. Agriculture is one of the world's oldest and vital professions. Farmers have remained one of the highest contributors to economic growth while consistently feeding the people who rely on their goods. Originally referred to as Old Farmers Day, National Farmers Day was cultivated to celebrate the hard work farmers put into growing their crops. Well, the date of October 12th came about as it lands at the end of the traditional harvesting period, allowing farmers to take part in festivities, which sometimes last the entirety of the month. I know if you're working that hard, you want to party, right? Additionally, every three years, the harvest moon will fall in early October, preceding and leading up to today, National Farmers Day, October 17th. So you got Farmers Day on the 12th, National Farmers Day on October 17th. So uh, Baltimore is going to uh, celebrate today, National Farmers Day, talk about organizing, and he's doing a great job in the South, in Mexico, and throughout the Midwest. All right, now a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You can find more at boydwatterson.com. California's governor, Gavin Newsom, who's been in the news a lot, good and bad, he signed a bill that will increase the minimum wage for most health care workers to $25 per hour. Not right away, 2026. Advocates for the bill had described it as a necessary measure to help address the state's health care worker shortage. Now, the bill was not easy. It was contentious in the legislature. Many Democrats worried that rural community hospitals facing a significantly higher minimum wage would either collapse or pass on costs to patients. So lawmakers compromised by implementing a staggered rollout period. Large hospitals will be required to pay $23 per hour starting next year, 25 by 2026, while small rural providers 
And those serving high rates of Medicare and Medi-Cal patients, well, they'll start at $18 per hour. They won't reach $25 until 2033, 10 years from now. Other compromises in the bill included a provision blocking cities and counties from raising wages locally and a provision blocking attempts to cap hospital executive pay. Interesting session in that uh, legislature. Waffle House workers at several southern locations are engaging in activity to push for better wages and working conditions. Many have walked off the job and a petition for calling $25 an hour minimum wage is now circulating. The Union of Southern Service Workers, which is supported by the SEIU, is behind the petition which is also calling for safer working conditions and an end to mandatory meal deduction policy. Now, Waffle House, mind you, is famous for remaining open 24-7, even through extreme weather events, in addition to attracting drunk and rowdy clientele in the third shift. The restaurant chain's business hours pose many threats to workers' safety. You, you know exactly what's going on here. The petition calls on Waffle House to include worker voices in developing safety plans for each store. Waffle House's tipped workers, by the way, make sub-minimum wages, but say that the culture of Waffle House does not invite generous tipping. In the meantime, Waffle House has yet to respond to the workers' demands. This is an interesting story to watch, and keep your eye on that group, the Union of Southern Service Workers, which is supported by the Service Employees International Union. We'll see if they uh, unionize some of these uh, Waffle House places. On Sunday, the Canadian Labor Union, better known as Uniform, announced that its members have voted in favor of a proposed contract with General Motors. Now, last week, the union went on strike at three GM facilities in Oshawa, St. Catharines, and Woodstock, Canada. Now, 12 hours later, Uniform reached a tentative agreement with the company that includes a base hourly wage increase of almost 20% for production and 25% of skilled trades over the three-year agreement, as well as reinstatement of cost-of-living allowances. That agreement was approved by 80.5% of union members at impacted facilities. And the contract, by the way, comes just one month after Uniform secured a similar deal with Ford's Canadian operations. The union plans to negotiate with Stellantis next following a pattern bargaining strategy. This, in contrast, to the U.S.'s United Auto Workers' current simultaneous bargaining approach. No new news there, by the way, for the uh, auto workers. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Melissa Cropper on behalf of the Ohio Federation of Teachers. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. 
Find out what it takes to be built by Liuna at liuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the U.S., US Canada, Canada, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Iron Workers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrance with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. AWF Union Podcast. Miss the show. Everything is archived on AWF Podcast. Let's go to Columbus, Ohio. Welcome one of our longtime supporters, and that would be Melissa Cropper, who serves as president of the Ohio Federation of Teachers, oh.aft.org. Lots to talk about today, as we do every month with Melissa. And today, I'm going to let her unwind what happened here. You know, sometimes the legislature, they go down the wrong road. And this is where the courts come in and try to figure out why they went in that direction. And today, we're going to talk about the creation of the Department of Education and Workforce, which, in a nutshell, takes away power from elected people. All right, Melissa, I'm going to let you pick it up from there because a lot of confusion here and maybe they push the needle a little too far. Why don't you uh, explain what's going on here? Sure. Uh, So currently in the state of Ohio, our our State Board of Education consists of, I think it's 19 members, um, 11 of whom are elected and eight who are appointed by the governor. So the last election cycle, uh, we were actually successful in getting three people on elected to the State Board of Education who have strong education backgrounds. Two of them actually had been educators before, and one had uh, worked in the education field in some capacity. Got them elected to the board, and no sooner did we get them elected than they than they uh, pushed forward a bill that would greatly take away powers from the State Board of Education, State Superintendent, and transfer those powers to uh, a new department under the governor, Department of Education and Workforce, and allows the governor to appoint a director and uh, two um, deputy directors underneath him to basically make all education policy. So um, they can't completely do away with the state board because the state board and state superintendent are in our state constitution, but they are limiting their powers to basically um, approving 
teacher licenses and approving property transfers and a lot of compliance type of issues and take all policy decisions out of their hands, um, which is, of course, you know, as, as you said, it really takes it, – it's another, it's another push to take away power from the people and concentrate in the hands of those who are in control. Um, so, of course, you know, we're not – we were not – happy about that. We testified against that bill every opportunity that we had, um, but weren't successful. They pushed it through in the budget and got it passed in the budget. Uh, so where things currently stand is five of the state school board members decided to um, file a lawsuit uh, on this. Now, after the lawsuit was filed, it actually changed the plaintiff to, I think, two of our state school board members are involved, but instead of it being school board members who are the litigants, it's actually parents who are the litigants in this lawsuit, claiming that you know, this, this violates our state constitution. Um, it takes away the voice of people in the electorate, um, so it's unconstitutional. So that's kind of the, the premise of the lawsuit. Have the parents been pretty vocal on this since they passed this in the spring that, that led to where we are today? Yeah, I mean, people, uh, pe- yeah, parents and people who were, you know, uh, we had we had hundreds of people testify against this bill, so people yeah. are uh, so people are frustrated. Uh, I mean, again, it goes to like uh, the issue one that we had in August, um, and this to me are both kind of like parallel types of things, where the legislature is trying to control everything that happens. And I should say the Republican, the Republicans in the legislature are trying to to take hold of all power in the state, and are limiting the voice of the people. So we, you know, we had people elect state board members because, based upon their education policy, and mm-hmm. now the legislature is taking that policy-making decision away from them. Now they argue that the governor should have control of education. Um, our argument back to that is the governor already had eight appointed seats on that board, so it wasn't like he was completely left out of education. And when people vote for a governor, edu- they're not just voting on his stance on education. They're voting on his stance on multiple issues. But when they vote for a state board of education member, they're voting for someone who represents their education policy. So uh, it, it, it takes it, – it, it's another – way of lessening our democratic voice and consolidating power behind one party. Melissa, to your knowledge, is this happening in other states or is this like exclusive to the state of Ohio right now? It is another one of those concepts, bills that is moving around from state to state. It's happening in Ohio right now. I believe it has happened. I, I'm trying to remember what other state has happened, and that's, I'm blanking on it right now. But there are some groups out there who are kind of tracking and actually watching what's hap- what happens in Ohio and doing some polling in some other states to see how people feel in other states because we suspect this is going to be another one of those type of bills that move across the country to yeah. try to take away power. And, and I think what, what people should think about is, you know, this, this is happening at the State Board of Education level now. At the same time, there's also, you know, a bill out there that's wanting to put party denomination on local school board races because this is it's supposed to be a nonpartisan race. They want to put party denomination on those races, um, and I, you know, we're not far removed from the legislature saying, "Well, 
let's not have local school boards either. Um, so when you look down the road at these power grabs, if this happens at a state level, how soon does it also happen at a local level where you say, well, let's just take away um, the, the election for our local school board and make it appointed by somebody instead? Yeah. So it, we have to be careful of these you know, slippery slopes that, that lead us to a very undemocratic system. Democracy so, so, is very fragile, very fragile. And, very you know, fragile. And, and so, what it does, it, it, there's people that don't like democracy. It's, it, again, it's a power grab, and they chip here, they chip there, and before you know it, uh, you don't have any voice. It's very sad, right. very sad. So currently it's really creating a lot of chaos because um, the, the judge in this case did issue a temporary restraining order um, to keep this from happening. That temporary restraining order is in effect until October 20th. So we'll find out on October 20th whether that becomes a permanent restraining order and the court takes up the case or if the court decides, no, the case doesn't proceed any further and the restraining order is lifted. So currently uh, can't proceed with the new Department of Education and Workforce. At the same time, the Ohio Department of Education is saying uh, because of the restraining order, we can't proceed with business. So no one can get questions answered now. So we have this new science of reading that was passed in the in the spring, during the budget cycle. Uh, we have all these issues around uh, you know, third grade reading guarantee, dyslexia professional development, a lot of new stuff that's out there that no one will answer any questions on uh, because uh, the court case is, is holding it up. And I really think this is also another power play by the governor because you know, the judge said you're supposed to maintain status quo. Status quo would mean that the department keeps operating, but he's, he's ordered that the department cannot answer any questions, it cannot do anything, and the new Department of Education is not allowed to do anything either. So it's really putting educators in a bind right now. And we'll see what happens this Friday. The deadline on that is uh, October 20th. That restraining order was extended at that time. All right, let's move on to uh, Banned Books Week, which was the first week of October. I know the OFT was pretty active on that and because we're seeing books being banned, not just in Ohio, but all around the country. What's uh, what, what happened on that uh, that week? Well, so, uh, you know, Banned Book Week has been around for a long, long time, and I think this year it, had, it, it took a little bit more, people paid a little bit more attention to it because of what we've seen happening across the country with book banning. Uh, we were really proud that one of our members uh, wrote a blog for the Schenker Institute, um, one of our new members at Worthington Public Library. Her name is Jen Collada, and she wrote this wonderful blog um, about a book that was so important to her when she was growing up. And the name of that book is The Care and Keeping of, of You, The Body Book for Girls. And this is a book that now appears on banned book, book list across the country. And in her blog, she talks about how important this book for her was in growing up and understanding what was happening to her body, what it means to transition from being a girl to, to being a woman, etc. And, and how... how um, how lost she would have been without, how, without having this book. So, again, banning that book prevents girls from having access to information that's very useful to them. And that's what we find in a lot of book banning, that the books that are being banned um, are books that actually help children understand the world around them. So uh, whether it's, uh, you know, 
the the diary of Anne Frank that appears on banned book list often. That again gives gives kids an understanding of what it meant to be a, a Jewish person during the Holocaust. But it's on a banned book list because at one point in time, Anne Frank, as a young girl, um, men- mentioned something about changes in her body and, and makes some you know, some types of minor sexual references. So it appears on banned book list. Uh, you know, and, and there's various examples of that that books, for some minor part in them, are putting being put on a list. And again, talking about a democratic society and threats to a democratic society, we have people, a minority of people, deciding what the majority of us can and cannot read. Um, and, and it's just, again, one of those things that are just seems so egregious um, to us that we are limiting uh, what what people, what students can read and what kind of information they can have access to instead of encouraging students to read everything they can get their hands on and learn learn about the world around them and learn about themselves and, and by the way, develop reading skills. So. Yeah. I call that the vocal minority that somehow gets a lot of media attention. And, oh, uh, they're it, it, so vocal. Yeah, they're so, so vocal. vocal. And they present themselves as as the uh, um, majority and and they and they make arguments based upon parental rights when they're taking away the rights of other parents <laughs> to allow their students to read these books so it, it, it again we we have to we the majority of us need to stand up and say you know this is ridiculous and we're not going to allow the minority of people to make these kind of decisions for us I like what you said there. There are parents taking away rights from other parents. That's exactly what's going on here. Exactly. All right. One of your favorite topics, I know, is organizing. And uh, talk to me about the Columbus College of Art and Design Faculty Association. This is pretty exciting. This is very exciting for us. You know, in Ohio... Under the public sector, um, adjunct professors don't have rights, and our adjunct professors in the state are one of the most uh, one of the most abused educators in terms of pay and benefits um, in in the state. Um, but in private sector, they there's nothing to prevent them from being organized. So the Columbus College of Art and Design um, came to us about a, oh, it's been several months ago, looking to organize, and they are. The majority of their faculty is adjunct professors, but they have about 150, 160 people there, and about two-thirds of them are adjunct professors. But they joined together to decide to form a union um, and chose us to be the union they wanted to organize with. And they have just did a phenomenal job organizing and just announced very recently that they um, that they ha- they reached a 70% threshold. I think they actually ended up uh, filing with about 73% support and are ready to go to an election. Um, now the college challenged um, they challenged having uh, adjunct professors and full-time professors um, in the same unit. Um, so in order to avoid a long delay with the NLRB, a long delay to, to the election. We actually agreed to hold those two separate elections. So there'll be an election for the full-time professors, an election for the adjunct professors, and then once we win both of those elections, which we will, then uh, they'll they'll negotiate to become one unit. 
but we are very, very excited about this uh, group of, of workers at the Columbus College of Art and Design. Very obviously creative people, um, love the way that they think, and their enthusiasm and hard work on this is really inspiring. Um, this campaign was a little different for us in that they're just right up the street from our office. Uh, that's a little unusual for us. So it became very exciting at the end when they're trying to get enough cards to, to reach this 70% threshold to file. That's the, that's the uh, standard we put on it, the 70% to file for an election. And they would, you know, ride their bicycles by and drop off a card or walk over and drop off a card. And they would just come in so um, excited and enthusiastic about it that it's just really energizing for us. So we're looking forward to this election. It will start on October 17th. It's a mail election, so we have to allow uh, two weeks. Um, but I feel very confident that we will win this election and we'll work on getting the first contract there. Well, there's a lot of people excited about unions, and that's just one of many. So that's cool. Good story. Good story. Always good to uh, end on a happy note there. Melissa Cropper, president of the Ohio Federation of Teachers. Check them out online, oh.aft.org. You know what? Uh, we had a member, the president of the Texas AFT on the show yesterday. Oh, he yeah, says, Zeph Hello. on. That's great. Yes. Z Zeph, Zeph Capo, yeah. And I mentioned your name. He says, oh, I like her. She's a fighter. <laughs> She's, oh, we're, 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 we're good friends, yes. We, we both, you know, we, we, we both... <laughs> We we joke all the time that it might be bad here, but at least we're not Florida yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, we, we, Andrew we Spar is on one that. of our good friends too, but we. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I stopped stop the export of the Florida and Texas up north here. You know, uh, That's we, right, you know leave, right. leave it down there. We have we have to work on those those problems down there. Don't bring them up here. But yeah, he sounds really good. I really enjoyed it. You Jeff can check is that doing out. Doing a on. phenomenal job and and. Texas, and uh, I'm excited about the work that they're doing there, pushing forward with a, a, you know, with um, democratic ideas. And like I said, they have a they have a lot, a lot of challenges there. But he's a phenomenal leader and the right person to lead them there in Texas. Oh, they got a voucher battle like none other yeah. down there right now. So, yes, they do. all right, Melissa, yeah. you take care. We're gonna have to run here. We'll uh, we'll talk to you next month. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Baltimore Velasquez, president and founder of the Farm Labor Organizing Committee, coming up next. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrans. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. Org. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AF. FGE. 
www.americanfederationofgovernmentemployees.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at uaw.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, here's what you do. Just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always, always appreciate those five-star ratings. We're getting plenty of them, too, so thank you. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency, always connecting people with employment, and that website is ulagency.org. Let's go to uh, Toledo, Ohio, and welcome someone who hasn't been on the show for a while, and today is National Farmers Day. we got to do more with this guy because he's so intelligent. He's also a member of the AFL-CIO Executive Council. He was elected to that position in 2009, born in 1947, growing up in a migrant farm worker family based in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. Every year, his family would migrate to the Midwest looking for work. I was reading earlier, Baltimore, Baltimore Velasquez is his name, and he's head of the uh, Farm Labor Organizing Committee, FLOC.com is their website. I was reading earlier, you were uh, living in barns, you and your family, living in barns and converted chicken coops. Take me back to that time. That's probably a time you want to forget, but it's important to know what some people have done, people like yourself to live in America. Baltimore, go ahead. Oh, well, uh, that was uh, in, in, in some experience. Uh, you, um, you know, you're kind of, you're hungry and you'll do anything to, uh, to feed your belly. So we had no choice but to go up and go out in the fields and uh, do everything by piece rate. There were no hourly wages. Uh, you fill the buckets, crates, containers, um, and they pay you by the unit that you filled um, fruits and vegetables, everything from tomatoes, cucumbers, cherries, strawberries, peaches, apples, uh, blueberries, raspberries. <laughs> if you've eaten it, I probably picked it at one time or another in my life. And um, so uh, we actually welcomed the work because we knew that um, – the more buckets and containers we filled, the more food there's going to be on the table. And so um, those were pretty sparse times. And, um, well, you know, like they say that um, uh, and those of us who are um, uh, Judeo-Christian uh, backgrounds um, feel that everything can be redeemed. And uh, obviously um, those experiences sort of shaped my thinking and ideas of uh, things that needed to be done to change those things. And that year was uh, 1960. That was, you said it was in Michigan when you were living in this, and there were no chickens in that chicken coop. They took the chickens out and they converted it into living quarters. Is that what happened? <laughs> yeah, there were the long buildings, and then um, uh, they were long enough to uh, separate them into like four compartments. Uh, they put plywood uh, uh, walls up and just four separate compartments and 
put a door in each one and uh, every family, uh, four families were crammed into each um, compartment in a concrete floor and uh, you had a um, kerosene stove for cooking and if you're lucky you had a refrigerator and they had uh, mattresses uh, filled with straw that we rolled up uh, uh, every morning after sleeping on them um, and um, you know you learn to put a, maybe a thick blanket underneath the under the um, uh, you know over the um, the the mattress with their they were like sheets sewn together with straw and we had to put them out and roll them up every morning uh, to try to make some breakfast and get out there and, and uh, pick up the crack of dawn. So that was in 1960. It's 2023. Do those kind of conditions, those kind of conditions of what you went through many decades ago, are, are migrants dealing with that kind of stuff today? Well, actually, yes. Um, if you look around all over the country, you find uh, uh, housing conditions for migrant workers. Um, uh, there's still a lot of squalor. Uh, you know, you got um, like house trailers. We got the you know ten guys crammed into a small house trailer, and um, um, I'm not sure they use barns and, and converted chicken coops anymore. But still, there um, the housing is pretty pretty squalid amazing in many parts of the country yeah we should point out that in 1969 baldemar became the first member of his family to graduate from college he graduated from bluffton college with a ba in sociology and in 1967 he started the farm labor organizing committee well let's talk about uh, or better known as flock how many uh, how many members make up flock well right now we have about um Actually, uh, dues-paying members in good standing, there's about 2,000, uh, depending on the time of the year, because we have uh, two types of members. Uh, there's uh, the, the ones that are under union contract, which they pay 2.5% of their gross income is dues uh, through payroll deductions. And then um, we have associate members that pay $30 a year. And these are many of these are veterans, former farm workers, um, who continue to support the effort. And it's really one of the uh, foundations and anchors of the union because they're here year-round, and they keep the movement alive when the migrants come and go, uh, depending on where they come from, from the Florida or Texas or even Mexico. They're under the uh, H-2A guest worker program. Mm -hmm. Now, has it been very difficult? You know there's been an attack on, on, on immigrants in this country, especially since the previous administration. Uh, I'm just wondering, has that stopped the flow of migrants? I mean, we, we still need people to, to work in the fields here. And, and I, I, we, have a, we, have an, we have a problem with that on many different levels today. Can you speak to that? Of course. You're not going to stop migration. Uh, they're trying to toughen up the border. But I tell you what, when a family is hungry and poor and you want to feed your children, there ain't no wall is going to keep you from, from finding a job uh, to uh, feed your your children, let alone uh, clothe and, and educate them. And um, and this migration issue, uh, particularly the border of the South, is not going to stop until America changes its foreign policy to those Central American uh, countries and even Mexico. What's your uh, what's your point of view on this as far as? is what kind of policy should be in place. I mean, I, I know they've tried over the years. It's such a contentious issue. It just seems 
to be getting worse, though. Do you have any ideas on how we can rectify the situation? Well, there has to uh, the change has to be one of sustainability. Uh, we need uh, uh, our foreign trade deals uh, have to be based on some kind of sustainable uh, 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 benchmark uh, when you're uh, negotiating with, uh, say, countries, the, the most common talked-about countries, Central America and Mexico. Um, we've had a foreign policy that has exploited and oppressed the, the uh, rural populations in those countries, and, um, uh, and because the trade deals that we have are they're not really for the common people, they're, they're investors' agreements. And so until we change that policy, uh, you're going to continue to see people displaced. I mean, the first three years of NAFTA under President Clinton, we displaced three million corn farmers in Mexico alone. And where do you think those people are? They're migrating to the urban areas or the border uh, to trying to um, trying to live, trying to survive. We've had many members uh, of flock, undocumented people in Ohio, Michigan, um, North Carolina, Virginia, Kentucky, that um, have been forced out of their homes because, you know, we when on NAFTA, when you eliminated the tariffs uh, on on uh, um, crops like corn, which are uh, part of the Mexican diet, and you dump uh, cheap North American corn in the Mexican market to go to the market, they can't sell their their corn in the, in the local uh, market or anywhere. And so you're run out of business and you have to leave your farm and migrate. We've had some up here in Toledo um, from those uh, corn growing states in, in Mexico and those rural populations. So we have to have a foreign policy that um, that's going to be able to um, uh, create at least safety nets, you know, for people that uh, are going to be uh, the consequences of, of our actions. Um, uh, for instance, uh, the, the trade deals um, uh, forced Mexico to change the constitution to allow foreign uh, ownership of property in Mexico. It used to be that uh, the the majority owners of um, of any land, the property in Mexico, had to be Mexican people. When they eliminated that, well, <laughs> the North American investors come in, bought out all the Mexican banks, and, and it raised interest rates and run small property owners out of business. I mean, those kind of trade deals just are just not going to work. And until we change that, you're going to find displaced people, and displaced people are going to move. They're going to migrate. That's the phenomenon. That's what's driving this phenomenon. It's not the walls or lack of walls or anything like that. And like I said, when you're hungry, man, there ain't no wall that's going to keep you from feeding your families. Yeah, yeah, and you could speak to that. That's exactly what you did many years ago. Baldemar Velasquez is on our live line today, and today is National Farmers Day. He's president and founder of the Farm Labor Organizing Committee. Do check out their website. Lots of good information on there, FLOC.com. We'll continue with Baldemar right after this. This is America's Workforce. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with Layuna. 
Find out what it takes for Liuna to keep America running at liuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. The heat and frost insulators and allied workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at boydwatterson.com. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast, AWF Union Podcast. Let's uh, rejoin on line number two, Mr. Baltimore Velasquez, president and founder of the Farm Labor Organizing Committee. Website is FLOC.com. Today is National Farmers Day. There's Farmers Day celebrated. That was last Thursday, October 12th. But National Farmers Day is on October 17th, which is today. Thought it was only appropriate to bring Baltimore to the show today to talk about the Farm Labor Organizing Committee. And they have thousands of members between Ohio, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Mexico. I want to talk a little bit more about these trade deals. And, and to your point, we've hit these trade deals pretty hard. We've seen a lot of manufacturing work work just disappear in this country. Some of that is coming back now with reshoring and at lower wages, I might add, because a lot of the jobs are going into the South and right to work states. But uh, we talked about NAFTA and then there was normalizing relations with China and that affected the migrant workers as well. Can you, uh, can you give us some examples of what happened there, Baltimore? Well, one specific example, um, because of Trump's arrogance in dealing with the Chinese, the Chinese were kind of smarter. They uh, they uh, didn't put uh, tariffs on uh, importing the tobacco that they normally purchase from the United States, uh, because Asian countries are pretty high consumers of of cigarette products. And um, what the Chinese did, it just didn't buy any. They stopped the purchasing, so we lost that market. Uh, for the, um, the farm workers in North Carolina, which is the largest uh, tobacco producing state in the country. Uh, we lost uh, 90, I think it was 93 million tons of tobacco from North Carolina alone. And that cost us a lot of jobs, cost the tobacco companies to lower prices for the farmers, and therefore eliminated jobs, you know, from the farm workers that came because some of them went out of business. They, they couldn't sustain with inflation and uh, the lower uh, tobacco prices, and then no market uh, for uh, the products, and so that's why they lowered the prices, and farmers couldn't sustain themselves, so some of them went out of business. Some of them downsized, and some of them turned to other crops, and uh, many farm workers lost those uh, hours of jobs. In addition to losing jobs, there's farm workers losing their lives, and I saw on your website the death of a farm worker. This happened uh, last month. When uh, and correct me if I'm not saying this, Jose Arturo Gonzalez Mendoza. Did I say that correctly? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. 
Jose tragically died while working on a farm within the North Carolina Growers Association. He was only 30 years of age, left behind a wife yes. and two children in Mexico. What happened here, Baltimore? Well, we don't know. The autopsy hasn't come back. Uh, and um, a lot of people were saying that it was heat stroke, the heat and, you know, and everything. Got, it, of course, I think it had, I had, it had a lot to do with it, but some of it um, mattered uh, based on what, what his health situation was. We don't know he had, if he had pre-existing conditions or um, if he was dehydrated when he came uh, to work that morning. It happened about 10.30, 10.40 in the morning. And um, uh, the grower that um, that were the farm that he was on is the largest sweet potato grower in the country, and uh, they were harvesting sweet potatoes. And um, uh, it's an artist's job. I picked. I've never picked sweet potatoes. I picked a lot of potatoes, the ones you make potato chips out of. And it is hot, dirty work. And um, uh, I worked in those kind of climates uh, growing up uh, my life. You really got to take care of yourself. You really got to keep hydrated, and uh, particularly that. Uh, I did that when I did my uh, uh, six-day work week in the tobacco fields uh, about 12 years ago in North Carolina. Uh, I moved into a labor camp for a week because I had never harvested anything close to tobacco. But um, uh, it's it's a really tough job. You really got to take care of yourself. And so, um, uh, no, we we making sure that the growers complied with all the obligations of an employer. Uh, we encouraged the um, uh, farmer for a uh, well, the uh, the family hired an attorney, uh, and uh, I've talked to the attorney and said, "Look, we've given all the assistance we can to help the family. We got in contact with the family in Mexico. As a matter of fact, um, I'm going to go see the uh, brother who's still in the labor camp." Uh, later on uh, this weekend, and so uh, we're looking uh, forward to support the family in any way we can, but we're very careful not to interfere with the, the representing uh, the attorney representing the, the worker. Uh, he was not a union member, uh, but as you know, in right to work states, uh, we have to represent and help everybody, uh, sure. and that's what we're doing, uh, making sure that everything is complied with. I'm really interested uh, to make sure that the workers' comp uh, uh, claim is filed on that, which we normally do in any circumstances. And I've advised the attorney that he has in Raleigh that they should uh, immediately pursue that. Uh, I don't know whether the lawyer knows anything about workers' comp, uh, but uh, the, the lawyer may be looking for a wrongful death uh, lawsuit. I have no idea, but we'll support whatever um, uh, comes down the pike. That's what unions do. Let's talk a bit yes, about sir. organizing. You you know the climate is good for organizing right now from the White House down with the Labor Department, with the Labor Board. Um, and I know you've done your your best as far as organizing here. Where do we uh, where do we stand right now and where do you see all this going here? So you want to capitalize on what's going on the as far as good, the good work that's coming out of Washington with regard to organizing yeah. and paving the way for organizing. So what's, what's your, uh, what's your take on that? Well, I, I think the administration is doing the best it can uh, within the constraints that there are in agriculture. We're not covered under the national labor relations act. So you wipe away a very big uh, block of advantage that you have there. Uh, there's no legal framework to organize unions and agriculture. We've been excluded since 1935 when the law was passed with the uh, support of the Southern Dixiecrats, uh, at that time, 
uh, and most of the farm workers were black, and they couldn't see that black people have the same rights as white people. So their condition to supporting uh, Roosevelt's initiative was to exclude agriculture workers. Uh, and so uh, we've been excluded ever since, and we've had to create independent legal frameworks to uh, unionize workers. And we have an extra, uh, and I wanted to get this in because I think this is very critical. Um, most of the farms that our members work on are suppliers of major manufacturers and retailers. And um, you're, when you're negotiating with a ceiling over your head, there's nothing to negotiate over. Uh, right now, these these, uh, these small family farms that are suppliers of these major corporations um, uh, don't have the overhead and don't have the profit margin to uh, give farm workers a living wage. So we have to uh, we have to push the entire supply chain and the people on the top who control it. That's how we pioneered these um, these uh, supply chain agreements, like with Campbell Soup back in the '80s. Vlasic Pickle, Heinz USA, Dean Foods, Aunt Jane, Green Bay Foods, and more recently in 2004, uh, the Mount Olive Pickle Company in North Carolina. So we have to negotiate with the manufacturers and retailers, and of course there's nothing in uh, uh, labor um, uh, history precedences that uh, allow us to do that. There's nothing to compel these manufacturers to uh, negotiate with a group of workers that are not their employees. So in a mouthful, I think that's the challenge that we have. So we really have to organize the farmers, uh, our, our employers, and because if they can't sustain their farms, we won't have jobs. And that's, uh, that's impacted by these trade agreements. It's impacted by the lack of, of uh, legal frameworks to organize. These small family farmers need unions, too, uh, to negotiate with the likes of the Campbell Soups and the uh, uh, Reynolds Tobacco, especially and the other uh, uh, retailers like uh, Walmart and um, uh, people who are buying globally and you know, competing on a, on a global scale, it's not going to work very long. You're not going to sustain food production in the U.S. You know, for very long. We're in, the, we're in the throes of beginning to lose big time the ability to grow our own food in the United States. So you got to negotiate with your hands tied behind your back and no laws to protect you. That's, that's the life of... Uh of a farm worker today. My gosh, that's well, amazing. The life of a farm worker organizer. <laughs> yeah, so farm worker are. organizer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh boy, Baltimore. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's important that the people listening to the show know what you're going through. It's so important. And uh, we, we struggled hard to get what happened in 1935, but they didn't include you in all that. They didn't include the farm workers on that one. So you hang in there. Stay in touch with us. Uh, you know, you're part. Of, you're a big part of America's workforce. You're, this is a union show. We're 100% union. So make sure if there's anything that comes up, you contact us. Okay, brother? You bet. Thank you. All right. Again, the website is FLOC.com. Baltimore Velasquez, president and founder of the Farm Labor Organizing Committee. That'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up tomorrow, the American Federation of Government Employees and what Building Futures did for one man in central Ohio. It's a great story. That'll be tomorrow. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.